0: Hebrews 7, Typology, Part 2. The 22nd talk in a series on the book of Hebrews was presented by Jack Crabtree on January 24, 2016 at Reformation Fellowship. The copyright for this recording is held by Gutenberg College, Inc., 2016. Gutenberg College is a non-profit organization, and contributions may be made at www.gutenberg.com. This material may be copied and distributed in whole for non-commercial and educational purposes subject to the inclusion of this introduction. All other rights reserved.
1: Several weeks ago, we started off in Hebrews chapter 7, and we've got sidetracked a little bit. I want to finish the sidetrack today. got sidetracked into the issue of what used to be called typology or these days is the very fashionable practice of looking for echoes in the New Testament of things in the Old Testament and examining some of the legitimacy of that. So I want to jump right in, have a few more comments to make about that, then we'll be done with that as you have questions, and then we'll probably, if we have time, finish the first 10 verses of chapter 7 of Hebrews. What I want to do first is look at a few of the ways in which we're faked out by the connections that we see between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are a number of connections that we might think that we see that I would argue are not. The the distinction I was making last week and the week before is the distinction between a purposive connection and a coincidental connection. Well, oftentimes we attribute purpose to something that's not really purposive. And what are the various ways that we get faked out by that? I want to talk about a couple of them. On the one hand, we can see what are merely verbal connections between something in the Old Testament and something in the New Testament. But although we see a verbal connection, we make of that something more than just a coincidence. But I would argue that given the nature of language, verbal connections are not enough to establish that somebody was intending a connection between them. I made up... And I'm sorry that I was confusing to some of you last week. I invented an interpretation of the Lord's Supper last week where I made a connection with Melchizedek based on the fact that both of them refer to bread and wine. The account in the Last Supper and the account about Melchizedek, they talk about bread and wine. The same words get used, so there's a connection, right? Well, it's only a verbal connection because when we looked at it a little bit more carefully last week, we recognized that although the words bread and wine appear in both cases, they're not the same thing. In the Last Supper, it's the ceremonial bread and the ceremonial wine that's connected with the Seder, the Passover dinner. In the case of Melchizedek, it's refreshment. It's refreshment for battle-weary armies. That's not the same thing. It doesn't play the same role. It doesn't have the same significance. So there really isn't even a true parallel, not a substantive parallel, between the bread and wine that we see Jesus using and the bread and wine in the Old Testament account. So verbally, they use the same words, but they don't even mean the same thing, really. We have in the parable of the sower that Jesus tells, this will be a little even more obvious, but in the parable of the sower, what does he sow? He sows seeds, right? Well, God made a promise to Abraham and his seed. So do we have a connection there? Do we have an echo there? I don't think so. Obviously, it doesn't mean the same thing, even though the same word is being used. One is the lineage of Abraham. And the other are literally wheat seeds or some kind of grain seeds. Paul, in Ephesians, talks about the manifold wisdom of God in a certain part of his argument. He refers to the manifold wisdom of God. If you look at that Greek word manifold, it's the word for multicolored, the multicolored wisdom of God. Ah, Joseph received a coat of many colors. Is there some kind of connection Is there an echo being created by Paul with the story of Joseph? Is that what Paul is intending to do, is to add to the meaning and augment the meaning of his argument in Ephesians by calling to mind Joseph and all that that entails? After all, what Paul is talking about are the many, many paths to eternal life, the many paths into the people of God, And his multicolored wisdom is all the different journeys that all of us are on that are also very different from one another, but all leading to the same end, being made a part of, being built into the people of God. Well, Joseph is a great example of God using a particular journey that looks odd. It looks like it's defeat, and it ends up being victory. So maybe Paul is trying to call that to mind when he writes Ephesians. He certainly could have, but is (laughs) multicolored enough to make that connection and have me go on and on and on about the connection between Joseph and all of our journeys? I don't think so. On what basis would I think that I had climbed into the mind and purpose of Paul and captured what he really intended just because he used the same word? that calls to mind a word used in an Old Testament account. Or it may be more than a word, it may be actually a material connection. John the Baptist was prepared by God while he lived in the wilderness. Likewise, Israel was prepared and trained up by God while they lived in the wilderness. Does that mean that John the Baptist is in some sense the true Israel? Both of them being trained up by God in the wilderness after all? I don't think so. There's really no comparison. The wilderness for Israel was a period of judgment. There's no indication that John the Baptist being in the wilderness was judgment on God's part. John the Baptist went there voluntarily. Israel, not so much. Yeah, there's outward superficial resemblance between them, but there's no real substantive likeness between what happened to John the Baptist and what happened to Israel. You might recall the account where Israel is without water in the wilderness, shortly after they came out of Egypt. And God tells Moses to take his staff and to strike a particular rock. And when he struck that rock, water came out and formed a stream in the wilderness that Israel drank from. So there was this life-saving water that came out of the rock when Moses struck it. Well, notice that when Jesus was on the cross, a Roman soldier took a spear and struck him in the side, and blood and water came out. And do we have an analogy there? Just as Moses' rock gave temporary life to Israel, perhaps Jesus is the true rock that gives eternal life to mankind. After all, in 1 Corinthians 10, referring to that very rock, Paul says the Christ was the rock, right? Is that what Paul meant? Is he suggesting that the rock is a type of Christ, of the life-giving, saving ability of Christ? And is that then connected with the fact that Jesus tells Peter, on this rock I will build my church? Well, you could do that. You can go there if you want. But I would argue that my sense, I think common sense, tells me it's coincidental. Each of those rocks is a different rock playing a different role, a different function any relationship between them is superficial and not substantive. Sisera, the general of, was it the Midianites, or one of the enemies of Israel, I don't remember which one, was killed by a tent stake being driven through his temple by Ya'el. Does that mean that Sisera's death is somehow connected to the tabernacle built by Moses? Because it's held up with tent pegs. No, that would be silly. That's ridiculous. But yeah, tent pegs are in both accounts or sometimes we can see functions that are superficially connected so superficially similar so for example a plant grew up and shielded jonah from the searing heat of the sun jesus shields us from the wrath of god was the plant purpose to foreshadow jesus the messiah is that what we are to conclude from that But note how superficial the resemblance is between the plant and Jesus. The plant shields us by creating shade, by physically blocking the sunlight from striking Jonah. Jesus shields, if we can even legitimately use that word, Jesus shields by effectively securing mercy from God, not by physically blocking God's wrath from reaching us, but by making it so that God does not even pour it out against us. So... We can use the same language of being shielded from the wrath of God, but it doesn't mean the same thing. It's a very superficial resemblance. By the same token, is there a connection between Jonah being three days and three nights in the bowels of the earth and Jesus being three days and three nights in the grave? It's true. Jesus points out exactly that connection, if you remember your gospel accounts. Jesus says at one point, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the fish, so will Jesus be three days and three nights in the bowels of the earth. So he makes that very connection. What is he doing? There's a huge difference between seeing a superficial, meaningless, and coincidental connection between two events. And I would argue that's what Jesus is seeing between Jonah and himself, It's a superficial, meaningless, and coincidental connection. But he sees it, and then he himself gives it significance. He turns a superficial connection into a meaningful connection. On what authority? On his own authority. He's the one who's predicting that he's going to be raised from the dead. That's different from discovering a meaning or significance that exists as a part of the very purpose for the accounts being there, the very purpose of that connection. Jesus is doing the former, giving significance to something that wouldn't otherwise have significance. He's not discovering significance that's already objectively there. There's no way that one could know from the Jonah story, knowing that Jonah was three days and three nights in the sea creature. There's no way that you could read that account and go, you know what, I'll bet you the Messiah is going to be exactly three days and three nights in the grave. It's got to be what God is telling us. That makes no sense at all. So Jesus is telling you that there is that connection. He's not discovering the connection out of the book of Jonah or the prophet Jonah. So what Jesus is doing in that parallel with Jonah is exactly what David was doing in Psalm 110 with Melchizedek. He's not discovering some meaning or significance to the story of Melchizedek. He's granting or giving meaning and significance to that account. And he's creating a connection between the Messiah and Melchizedek. He's not discovering it. Anyone can grant or create meaning to the connection between the bread and wine of Jesus at the Last Supper, for example, and the bread and wine of Melchizedek at his meeting Abraham. I could create that meaning if I wanted to, but that doesn't mean that I've discovered a purposive connection between them. I'm just creatively inventing a connection with meaning. Now, I'm sure there are other things that fake us out, but I think those are the three big ones. Verbal connections, material connections, using the same realities in in two different events, And functional, superficial, functional connections. We get faked out by that, and we can imagine someone attributing meaning and significance to it, and we make the mistake of thinking that they are discovering meaning and significance to the connection. But it's not real. And what I'm arguing is that only real, substantial likenesses between an event in the New Testament and an event in the Old Testament can validly and reasonably be judged to be purposive rather than coincidental. If they are only superficial, then I have no business thinking that they are anything other than coincidental. Often, very, very dissimilar events are taken to be similar by ignoring most of the context that gives meaning and significance to the elements of the event. I've already illustrated that with my made-up example of Melchizedek, There's no real likeness between what Melchizedek and what Jesus did at the Last Supper. Any similarities there are utterly superficial. They're not real and substantial, and I would know that if I thought carefully and critically about exactly what's going on in each event. They're not the same thing at all. Moses striking the rock and water coming out is only very superficially similar to the Roman soldier striking Jesus on the side and water coming out. The water that's coming out of Jesus is almost totally irrelevant to our salvation. The only significance it has to our salvation is it was some kind of evidence that he had actually died. But otherwise, there's no significance to it. The water coming out of the rock in the case of Moses was the very thing that saved Israel from dying of thirst. At the Red Sea, Moses' outstretched arms as he brings about the rescue of Israel at the parting of the Red Sea is only very superficially similar to Jesus' outstretched arms on the cross. The church fathers, many of them, made a big deal out of that, that Moses' outstretched arm parting the Red Sea and saving Israel was a type of Christ's crucifixion because in both cases there are outstretched arms. But this and this are very different, not only in shape, but in significance, in the function, in the role that they're playing. Now, am I just being silly here? Well, I think so, but the history of biblical interpretation is full of these kinds of interpretations. And I'm just wanting to get us to start thinking about, is that really what we want to do with our Bibles? Is that really the valid and legitimate thing to do? Why not? Isn't it harmless, we say? I don't think it is harmless. It's subtly destructive. It's subtle in its destructiveness, but it is ultimately quite destructive, I think, when we treat the Bible that way. Let me just take a few minutes to talk about that. I'm going to focus primarily on what I see happening today among academic scholars today. It's not uncommon to look for echoes in the New Testament of things in the Old Testament. But where is that practice I mean the practice of looking for and discovering an echo. Where is it at home? Where is that a practice that makes sense? Where is that a practice where you don't really have to bend your mind in order to go, yeah, yeah, of course, that's what's going on. It's at home if you see the Bible as an ordinary human artifact, a book, a set of writings, created by ingenious human beings. It's at home in the perspective of a scholar who does not believe that the Bible is a special book, divinely inspired, put there by God to play a unique and special role in our lives, in human history. It's just an artifact that the history of religion has given to us. There are these people back in the day who had some kind of religious experience. Now, and we all know that religious experiences are just religious experiences, right? If it's meaningful to me, it's meaningful to me, but it's not like it's objectively real or objectively true or nothing. So they have these religious experience that's somehow connected with Jesus, and so that leads them to want to make the case for Jesus being a big deal. Now, who was Jesus really? He was this humble peasant from Galilee. He wasn't really nothing special, but... Just as an accident of history, he got caught up in the politics of that time, and the rest is history, right? But some people had some kind of religious, radical religious experience in connection with Jesus. And so they begin to write to persuade, I suppose, themselves, as well as everyone else, that Jesus is a bigger deal than just being a plain old ordinary humble peasant from Galilee. Well, how are you going to do that? Well, you got to make the case that he's more important than Abraham, and he's more important than Moses, and he's more important than David. There's a number of ways that you can approach that. He wasn't really, of course, more important than any of them. But he's more important than them to me, and so I want to give expression to the fact that he's more important to me. So I'm going to engage in rhetorical sophistry, and I don't use that word lightly. I'm going to engage in sophistry, Uh, fallacious arguments, specious arguments, arguments that aren't really valid and aren't really convincing and aren't really compelling in order to just sort of make the case, hopefully provoke you, move you to honor Jesus as I honor Jesus. Well, if that's what's happening in history, then looking to find those ingenious, creative human authors who are just making all this stuff up, creating echoes in order to rhetorically manipulate you okay that would make sense if that's what's going on and if, if that's what they're really doing that's where looking for echoes is very much at home but what happens is that's the assumptions and the worldview of the vast majority of academic students of the bible and they are the ones in the prestigious chairs in the university. They're the ones that get published. They're the ones that everybody's reading. They're the ones that make a name for themselves and become famous in not only academic circles, but in elite circles. And so, humble little believing Christian seminary professor is reading all these books and all of a sudden decides, well, they don't really believe that Jesus was really the Son of God, and they don't really believe that God really inspired the Bible. In fact, they don't really believe that God even exists. But look at how they're reading the Bible. I can do that too. I'm just not going to buy their skeptical, critical assumptions. I'm going to borrow their practice, but I'm going to reject the whole worldview and the set of assumptions that led them. that practice. What can be the harm in that? Especially because the practice is widely accepted. I mean, those guys get PhDs and famous for practicing that. So what can be the harm in me using that, but I'll use it to the glory of God. I will make the case that I will recast what I'm doing and the assumptions behind it to make it honor the truth, the veracity, and the historicity of these accounts. I would argue it doesn't work that way. And there's fundamentally two problems with it. One is it it sets me up, and if not me, the people that are listening to me. It familiarizes us with a practice that at its roots is skeptical. It doesn't really believe that this is the word of God. It doesn't really believe that this has any intellectual integrity in and of itself. It has to be imposed by ingenuity and creativity. But it's not really believable in and of itself. After a while, after years or decades of living with that, you become then very comfortable with beginning to look at the Bible as if it were just a manufactured book. And once you begin to think of it as just a human artifact, a manufactured book by human beings, it's then a small step, to begin to reject what it says, to reject what it teaches. Bit by bit, strand by strand, theme by theme, you just go, well, yeah, it's the word of God and all that, but that doesn't mean like everything in it is right. It's not like everything in it is true. And so those truths that begin to feel more and more inconvenient, we abandon them. Now, you and I probably won't, because there's a lot of reasons to believe Many of them are very subjective. There's a lot of reasons to believe. But if I'm a Bible teacher who's practicing that, it's not just about me. What am I giving to the people who I'm modeling how to look at the Bible? They're not as committed to it to begin with as I am. So I keep dishing out an approach to the Bible that doesn't take the Bible really all that seriously as anything more than an accident of history created by Ingenious human beings And eventually they go Okay, that's that's all fine and good, Jack But I don't know why you keep believing it This is all bunk This is just rhetoric This is all smoke and mirrors Why don't you just walk away from it, Jack? And they have more courage than I do And more consistency than I do And so they walk away from it This is either true or it's not true And if it's not true I can't make it true with rhetoric and manipulation The other thing is How valid is it? Sophistry is sophistry no matter what use you put it to. It doesn't matter that I use sophistical arguments to try to persuade you of something that is actually true. I haven't respected you enough to let you be persuaded by sound reasoning, so instead I trick you with fallacious arguments. I manipulate you into the truth. Surely our Lord, surely God is not behind manipulation in any fashion. Manipulation is unloving. It is dishonest. There is nothing valid about manipulation. And I would argue that many of these so-called echoes that people find in the Bible are nothing more than an attempt to manipulate people into a point of view that even if the point of view is true, you would never know it's true from that from the argument that you just made or from the connection that you just thought that you saw. Okay. Well, let me stop there and respond to any questions or objections or reactions you have.
2: One quick one on the Jonah illustration I was going to ask you, and this is going to be a thought experiment anyway. So if another prophet or some other character posts Jonah, like one of the late prophets... Zechariah or Isaiah or anybody, had thrown it out there that, oh, by the way, when Messiah comes, you'll see something happen, like happened in the time of Jonah. Then it in your mind, you would probably say, it's going to get traction then. It's it would about- get traction. It would be a more valid illustration of, than just the one time, because it's thinking that it would be cited as an illustration of something to look for or something you may see when Messiah comes. Yeah, but yes.
1: it makes all the difference in the world who's telling me that. You and I could go back to an Old Testament account and say, when Jesus comes again, it's going to be like, I don't know, I'm not that fast, I'm not that creative, but I could come up with some merely verbal connection with something in the Old Testament and I could make a claim about the second coming of Jesus as foreshadowed by something in the Old Testament. What good is that? It depends on whether I know what I'm talking about, right? Because I'm not discovering a meaning there that you could discover too, I'm telling you that this is the significance that I see in there. But it's the significance that I see there and that I put there based on my take on what the second coming is going to be like. Well, I ain't no prophet. I have no clue what the second coming of Jesus is going to be like other than what I read in the Bible. So I would just be making it up, and I have no authority to tell you anything, to teach you anything about something new and different and novel about the second coming of Jesus. So what should you do? Say, good, Jack, cute, interesting. We'll see. You know, we'll see if you're right or not. You shouldn't give any credence to what I'm saying. But when David does that, well, it's on David's authority as a prophet or as a conveyor of prophetic messages. I'm going to listen to him. That's what Paul is doing is he's listening to David because He's speaking prophetically. It's in the scripture. It's a part of the canon of scripture itself. And so it has an authority because of its source. And what is its source? Not Genesis 14. The source is Psalm 110, David. David the prophet speaking. What is the source of the connection between Jonah and Jesus' death? Jesus himself. Do I pay any attention to Jesus? Yeah, good idea. I do. But if it's somebody who has no authority to tell me anything new and different and novel. They're just making it up. They may be right. They might not be right. I have no reason to know that they are. Does that make sense?
2: I think we're in agreement. I, all I was just going to say was, so the qualifier would be the Jonah example would have been cited by, a, a let's prophet. say, a prophet. A prophet. That makes all the difference.
1: That makes all the difference in the world. Exactly, yeah.
0: Thanks, Jack. I appreciate a lot of things that you said about being careful to not treat the Bible as a purely human document and the tendency and temptation to do that. And that makes a lot of sense. You mentioned like medieval scholars doing the same kind of typology stuff or probably for different reasons than postmodern.
1: Which I think I was thinking of the church fathers. I'm okay, not the sure church about. fathers.
0: Mm-hmm. For different reasons than postmodern Christian scholars today would do. And I think you did a good job of showing with those different examples how easy it is to come up with things, and how little water they hold under scrutiny. I find myself coming at it from the perspective of, like, I haven't read Christian scholars. Like, I've read One Tiny Thing by Tillich, you know, like, and C.S. Lewis. (laughs) But having been trained at Gutenberg, having a great respect for authorial intent, and what people can do with literature, and the myriad of ways people can communicate ideas and growing up with a respect for the scripture, but also seeing things like what you're talking about happening in sermons and think this does that we're basing our ideas about how we treat people on like this random connection. So, but studying, trying to study the Bible and so figure out, so what are the authors trying to say, recognizing things like there's a bunch of different authors. There's a, There's a whole bunch of different styles. There's poetry, there's history, there's... I guess we can deconstruct all these bad ways of interpreting scripture. But when we're trying to figure out, okay, so how do we go about reading these? And they do have historical contexts. They were written by people, but there's something... But they're more than that, too. They're inspired, so they're true. But we can't just treat it as like a holy ghost language like scholars did with Greek for so long. So trying to strike that balance and realizing that, well, if you have something like history, it is something the author can do is go back and find parallel historical events and, like you're saying, create meaning and put those into the text. So is Matthew going back to Israel's history? And out of all of the things he could have said about Jesus, his point is, look at the continuancy. Like, Jesus fits in with our history history. He is our Messiah, therefore he's legitimate. And using historical events to kind of say that, for example, without telling us that that's what he's doing, but to somebody steeped in that history, it would be evident that that's what they're doing, and that that's what he's doing. So I find myself struggling with, how do I know if I'm on the right track? Because what Matthew is doing, or what Isaiah is doing, they're drawing on a tradition that's not mine, and they're trying to show, like, They're heirs of a promise that's historical. History is important to them. And if you're coming from a future point of view, that's an advantage you have as a historian. You can have all these different events to kind of draw back on and, like you're saying, create meaning and connections. So how do I know if somebody's actually doing that? Do you have any ideas about when that's a legitimate thing? Because you pointed out the Passover Seder being communion. And I think that to a lot of Christians that would be kind of like kind of, but Jesus is doing something new. But what you're doing is saying, no, look at the connections. This has to be, there are enough connections here that this has to be the meaning behind what Jesus is doing at communion. And so where does that become legitimate and the other stuff? So what would be some of your thoughts about how to do that in a way that is responsible, is legitimate? Because we are trying to, I think, since we've had all this bad interpretation, we're kind of reconstructing something new. And there aren't necessarily any great guidelines (laughs) to date.
1: Well, that's a very important question, a great question, and I can't do it justice here. So let me just speak generally. To answer it specifically, we'd have to look at several different passages and talk them to death, look at them from every angle and figure out what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, what's going on, what's not going on and learn inductively by doing that over and over and over again. I'm not sure I can remember everything that flooded into my mind as you were speaking, but with respect to Matthew, no, I don't think that's what Matthew's doing. See, it's sophistry to make something up and then tell you I'm discovering it, right? That's fallacious. If I tell you there's a connection between, I, I don't know the passages, but there's a connection between what this prophet said here and what happened to Jesus, if I make up a connection but I tell you that I'm discovering the connection, that's fallacious. And one thing I am absolutely confident about is if our faith is based upon the testimony of a bunch of men making junk up and pretending like they discovered it there, then our faith is based on a very shaky foundation. And I have a real serious problem with that. If they don't have the integrity to persuade me according to what's objectively true on the basis of arguments that are objectively valid, then why on earth do we believe this stuff? It shouldn't be something that they esoterically, secretly know and see, and I could never see it, but they're telling me, look, it's there. I see it. I know you don't see it, but I see it. It's there. I shouldn't be believing people like that. And I don't think that's what Matthew is doing, because what I would argue is Matthew is appealing to us to go back and see for ourselves that there's, well, let me put it this way. Matthew is appealing to us to say, if you're going to understand Jesus, you're going to have to understand that he's the fulfillment of what these prophets were actually objectively saying was the case. Okay? So he's not creating connections, and then on his authority as an apostle, making a claim, he, I don't think that Matthew is claiming to speak on his own authority in the opening chapters of Matthew. He's claiming to be representing the way in which Jesus is continuous with the actual discoverable, understandable meaning of the Old Testament predictions. Now, we'd have to look at them each separately and look at the ins and outs of that. But the main answer to your question is, we have to use our common sense And we have to use our common sense critically. And what I mean by critically is we have to resist being products of our culture and products of all the cultural forces that are shaping us. There's a difference between common sense that's rooted in human intelligence and common sense that is basically thinking the way everybody around me thinks. That also feels like common sense, right? Everybody knows X. Well, everybody in America in the 21st century knows X, but most of world history have not known that at all. Why? Because it's not the product of human intelligence that tells us X, it's that everything in my culture is telling me, look at it this way, think about it this way. If you say that, you can get away with it. If we went into the social-political issues, you could see that all over the place. We are so much shaped by the civil religion around us with its tenets, its values, its practices, its perspectives, its prejudices. And we know that if we line up with those, we're going to be okay. I can say that. I can talk that way. I can make that criticism. I can make that point, And no one's going to criticize me because everybody knows that. Everybody believes that. But does everybody know that because it's true, because it's real? Or is it just sort of the consensus right now at this point in time in history? Well, the same thing is at work in biblical scholarship. I know good and well that I'm on safe grounds if I practice looking for echoes. I'm on absolutely safe ground. And so let's look. Let's look. Let's see. See what we can see. See what we can find. That's where we should step back and ask ourselves, scrutinize my own practice. Why does that make sense to me? does that make sense to me in the sense that I know I'm comfortable with it because I can get away with it? Or does it really, honestly, truly make sense to my intelligence? And when I ask that question, I think we'll find that there's a difference between what really makes sense to me because it makes sense to my rationality and my intelligence and what makes sense to me because it fits in with what everyone else in biblical study circles is doing. And thinking, how they're thinking. And that's not enough. It's not enough that I can get away with it and that it'll conform to the consensus. That's not enough. Disciples of Jesus are not people who belong to the consensus. We are always going to be weird. We are always going to be odd. We are always going to be on the outside. I've seen this my whole life as a Christian, other Christians who are dazzled by what's respectable, culturally respectable, among commentators or theologians or Bible scholars or academics or whatever. We give them the benefit of the doubt. And I'm exactly the opposite. Anything that's popular is suspect in my mind. Why would a culture of liars telling lies to one another, why would that produce truth? Why would that get me closer to the truth? So whenever I find agreement, a large, wide-scale acceptance of something, the first question I ask is, what is that a Appealing to? Why does that resonate with the culture? More often than not, it's highly unlikely that it's resonating with our godless culture because it's true. It's way more likely that it's resonating with our godless culture because it somehow lets us off the hook. And that's why this is an important issue to me is that we, of all people, need to stand apart as those people who think the way we think, act the way we act, do what we do against what's popular because we're committed to what's true so by the same token what that means is if something happens to be both true and popular i'm not afraid to embrace the popular either because it's popularity or unpopularity is not even the issue the issue is whether it's true so in answer to your query how do we know the right way to do it you can teach yourself the right way to do it i think But what you have to be on guard is that you don't allow yourself to become overly enamored with what everyone else, what the respectable people out there are doing and saying. Never mind that. You ask yourself the question, you've got to be the kid who says, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. And that's what I think is the case with all this echo talk. The emperor doesn't have any clothes on. It doesn't make sense. It's not valid. It's not an appropriate approach. And, as Judy said last week, the really most important thing is what I see are page after page after page discussing the so-called echo, and I, after several pages of that, and what have you taught me? <laughs> you established that you think you're an echo there, but how did that help me understand what was actually being said? It didn't enlighten me any. And so it distracts us. It distracts us from finding and discovering and honing in on the message of the Bible in order to find the glitter, the cultural glitter and glitz of what people find fashionable out there.
0: But in theory, you would say that there could be instances where the biblical author is making an illusion, is drawing on previous material, is pointing back to something that happened, and that could be different from somebody going around and randomly finding whatever echo oh, yeah, they want to sure, hear. yeah, absolutely. Okay, because yeah, that's but, more what I'm thinking is...
1: But if you, the biblical author, are creating meaning, don't tell me you're not. Don't tell me you're discovering it. Mm-hmm. And so that's part of what my task is to say, what do you think you're doing, Matthew? Right. What do you think you're doing, Luke? What do you think you're doing, Paul or Jesus? God-ordained sophistry is still sophistry. That's what looms large to me. I don't care if God, even if God is the one who is creating a connection that's not really a connection, but I'm supposed to see it as a real connection. If God is doing that, then he's using sophistry to try to persuade me of the truth. I find that unfathomable, that God would use sophistry. You know what I mean by sophistry? Yeah. Rhetorical tricks, manipulation. Is in what Socrates criticized? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Maybe this will be a great illustration of what I'm talking about. I just chanced across this. I'm reading this book for an entirely different reason, but Melchizedek comes up, and it's quite interesting here. It's about four pages, so bear with me, but this will give you a great example of what I think is a completely wrong way to think about this and look at this. The issues are a little bit different than what we've just been talking about now, but it'll give you a feel for the kind of thing that I'm reacting to. Melchizedek appears in Scripture only in Genesis 14, Psalm 110, and Hebrews 5, 6 through 7:28. We will examine each text independently and then altogether. If we had only Genesis 14, we could easily conclude that Melchizedek was no more than a king in the land of Canaan, whether Canaanite, Amorite, or Jebusite, As a prominent force in the region, he welcomes Abram back from his successful campaign, offers refreshment and congratulations, and receives a tithe that indicates the recognition of his suzerainty over Abram. Not sure about that, but the rest of that is exactly what I've been saying. Like most kings in the ancient world, Melchizedek is also a priest. Specifically, he is a priest of El Elyon which is a generic identification of deity, as best we can tell. It is left to Abraham to affirm that in his opinion, Yahweh is El Elyon. Melchizedek makes no such claim. In Psalm 110, the very brief allusion uses the priest-king combination, true of most kings in the ancient world, and Melchizedek's location in Jerusalem to provide precedent for a priest-king combination in the ideal Davidic king, that eventually develops into a messianic theology. As John Hilber has demonstrated, Psalm 110 is a prophetic oracle that shares many similarities with Assyrian prophecies. As is well established, priesthood in Israel was connected to the line of Levi, not the line of Judah. Here, however, priestly prerogatives for the king are drawn from the historic precedents in Jerusalem rather than from the Torah structures laid out in the Pentateuch. Presumably, it would not give the kings the right to usurp Levitical prerogatives, but would give them some additional unspecified priestly prerogatives. The treatment of Melchizedek in Hebrews 5 through 7 offers an opportunity to explore the complex ways that intertextuality can work. Intertextuality is the relationship between several different texts that share common roots. Even a casual reader can detect that there are characteristics attributed to Melchizedek in Hebrews that clearly do not derive from Genesis or Psalms. When we investigate what precursors Hebrew might be drawing from, our attention begins to focus on the intertestamental literature of Second Temple Judaism. The Hasmoneans, they were the people right prior to Herod that were the governing people over Israel during about 70 years of their quasi-independence from anybody. That's called the Hasmonean dynasty. The Hasmoneans, seeking to establish a messianic dimension to their rule, justified their priestly royal prerogatives by reference to Melchizedek. This practice was continued by the Sadducees. In the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, two scrolls, both show that Melchizedek has become the subject of much speculative interpretation, the former assigns him a judging function in heaven and associates Psalm 7, 8 through 9, 821 with him. Another scroll identifies him as Michael and calls him the Prince of Light. He is depicted as a heavenly redeemer figure, a leader of the forces of light who brings release to the captives and reigns during the Messianic Age. He is the heavenly high priest to whom archangels make expiation for the sins of ignorance of the righteous. In the Talmud and Targum Neophyti Melchizedek is identified as Shem. The former attributes irreverence to him, to Shem, and thereby transfer I'm, I'm sorry, Melchizedek, and thereby transfers his priesthood to Abraham. In the later apologetic works of Justin Martyr, Melchizedek is portrayed as a representative of the Gentiles, who is seen as superior to the Jewish representative, Abraham. Philo of Alexandria considers him, Melchizedek, the eternal Logos. Okay, so there's all this literature in the intertestamental period that is getting really hyperbolic and hysterical in their claims about who Melchizedek is. By the time we get to Hebrews 7, these Jewish traditions are mixed into the consideration of Melchizedek. The author of Hebrews is not drawing his information on Melchizedek solely from the Old Testament. He is also interacting with the traditions known to his audience. It is the Jewish profile of Melchizedek, not just the canonical profile, that informs his comparison. The author has all along been addressing his audience on their own level and in relationship to their own beliefs. He need not accept their beliefs, But he is demonstrating that Christ's position is superior to the position in which they have placed others. He therefore relates not only to the Melchizedek of history, but to the Melchizedek of Jewish imagination. In some ways, this would be like speaking to a Buddhist about how Christ is superior to Buddha. There is both a historical Buddha and the Buddha that has become the central focus in the traditions of Buddhism. The point for the author of Hebrews is not to argue the validity of his audience's belief one way or another, but to use their beliefs for a comparison to Christ. There is no attempt to establish that Jesus is superior to the image cast of Melchizedek, only that the priesthood represented by Jesus on the basis of Melchizedek's precedent is superior to the Levitical priesthood. As a result, there is nothing in Hebrews to suggest that we need to believe that Melchizedek was anything other than the Canaanite king depicted in Genesis 14. I agree with that. The profile in Hebrews combines the biblical information about the historical Melchizedek from Genesis 14, the theological political prototype of Jerusalem-based royal priesthood that finds its precedent in Melchizedek, and the literary traditional view of Melchizedek evident in Jewish speculative theology. Wrong false. These three strands are inextricably woven together with no roadmap given to the audience to allow them to distinguish the strands. All three are legitimate for the inspired author of Hebrews to use, even though they are not of the same nature. Do you see what he's saying? The author of Hebrews used a completely and purely ad hominem argument, and ad hominem arguments are inherently fallacious. They may be rhetorically valuable, but they don't get you to the truth. In other words, what he's saying is he's making all this stuff up. He's drawing on these three different sources and putting them all together uh, however he wants to because he wants to convince his readers of a certain thing. But as he says here, the author of Hebrews doesn't even have to believe that Jewish theology is valid in order to use it. That is crazy-making. This is a conservative Bible scholar. That's what I'm responding to. That's what I'm objecting to. That's what we need to really take care, that we don't go down that path and think along those lines. Ad hominem argument is fallacious. Sophistry is fallacious. Manipulation is immoral. I do not believe we have been immorally manipulated into believing the gospel. It either stands alone on its own two feet, or we should walk away from it and reject it as not true. But we shouldn't defend it to ourselves and defend it to others on the basis of specious arguments. And if we see a specious argument, we should reject it. I don't care if it's tending toward what we believe to be true or not. A specious argument is still a specious argument.
0: I'm not sure how what he's doing is an ad hominem argument, because it it doesn't seem sophistical to me. For somebody to say, You guys know Melchizedek. And he knows what that's going to bring to mind. All these different things they've read about Melchizedek. And he's saying, This character, Melchizedek, Jesus is sort of like him, but in their priestly.
1: Well, that,
0: yeah. okay, yeah, it
1: may not have been clear from just my reading it what he's saying, but one of the things he's saying is, We know that Jesus being a priest forever is because in the Jewish imagination, Melchizedek was eternal. So Jesus being like him is being eternal like Melchizedek was eternal.
0: I'm still not sure. Can't Paul assert that? Just like this character who you have grown up with and who you know from your studies was eternal, the son of God is going to be like him without saying anything about the real Melchizedek. But he's making an assertion about the real Messiah.
1: Well, we'd we'd have to unpack exactly how he understands the argument to be working. Could we make an argument for something about Jesus? Well, see that? uh, It depends what the argument is. If we're just making a claim, an analogy, Jesus is like Santa Claus. We all know Santa Claus is not real. We all know Santa Claus is not really like that. But for purposes of illustration i'm going to make an analogy could you do that yeah you could do that but is that what david is doing and is that what paul is doing i don't think so maybe that's what he's saying is going on here but i'd have to hear a little bit more
0: mm-hmm. no? that was at least my understanding of what he was saying from the passage you read there.
1: so unpack it for me so what do you understand him to be so what's the argument The commentator's
0: argument? Paul is drawing on a rich literary tradition that includes scriptural input, crazy input, (laughs) like Talmudic and other input. It'd be the equivalent of someone drawing on the Bible and some Shakespeare, and then saying this character who the Bible, the Talmud, or the Dead Sea Scrolls, I can't remember exactly who all the different players were, this character who... We can talk about Melchizedek, and that brings up a vast array of associations. And I'm going to pick a few associations that that would bring to mind for my audience. And the Son of God is like that. Or
1: have okay, to but say. see, the, the difference, See, it's, we know Hamlet is a character in a play. We know Santa Claus is myth. Mm-hmm. We know Paul Bunyan is myth. If I use them... There's no confusion. But these scrolls from the Dead Sea, I think they really believe that Melchizedek is Michael. Philo really believed he was the eternal logos. It's not a fiction. It's a false belief. So he's taking false beliefs that is embedded in their literature, is found in their literature, and using these false beliefs to construct an argument to his readers. Do you see why I would have a problem with that?
0: When you put it that way, I think so, but it still seems like he doesn't have to be saying that all of this stuff about Melchizedek is historical and true. But this person who we've all come to think about and we all know what he's like from these various sources, I'm going to make some points about Jesus based on him in these ways that you understand.
1: Now, compare and contrast that with the way I've interpreted the first ten verses and I know it's been a long time ago, yeah. but I didn't depart one bit from the Genesis account. Mm-hmm. I think everything that Paul says can be found in the Genesis account. So why is he going somewhere else? Why are you looking at there are texts where he's Michael, there's text where he's Shem, I guess it was, mm-hmm. there's text where he judges the angels. Really? Why do I even need to consider those? That's the other thing that's in the air in academic circles today. We are so undiscerning. This whole thing is about Genesis 1, and he's really undiscerning about this. If it comes from the ancient world, then it must be similar to what Genesis is talking about. Well, fast forward 5,000 years from now and look at something that you or I might write in the context of our culture. Would it be right to understand the meaning of what I'm writing by looking for continuity between what I'm saying and my culture? Is it possible that there is a radical discontinuity between what I write, what I believe, what I say, what I teach, and what my culture is teaching? Well, by the same token, is it possible that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are intended to be radically discontinuous with the worldview of the ancient world in which they're situated? I think so. I think there's a radically discontinuous view of the world and a radically discontinuous view of God. It's a very, very different God that they believe in. And God's relationship to the world is very, very different than how the Akkadians would have understood the relationship between Marduk and the world. They're not the same thing. So, but what's in vogue is to make them as continuous as possible, to blend them as much as possible. I'm all for understanding a text in its cultural, historical situation. That's the only way to understand a text. But there's two relationships that that text can have to its historical situation. It can be intention with it, or it can be reflective of its culture. Which is it? I have to decide. I have to determine that. I have to be a good enough interpreter that I can make a determination of what it is I'm seeing. Am I seeing continuity or discontinuity?
0: I think that's to me, seems like a really good point, because if you can explain it all from the Genesis without having to stretch or make things weird, then that's great. Why would we look outside of that? I think it's lines like, without father and mother and him being eternal, then it's kind of like, well, this is weird. There's nothing about that in Genesis. Oh, but look, in literature that would have been known at the time, there is this idea of him having this eternal aspect. Okay, so maybe so, that's where he got So if the that's idea. the
1: way he's reading it, then look yeah. what's happening. He's taking false beliefs from Jewish speculative theology and bringing them into the text and making it part of his argument. Then why should I trust Paul? If he's willing and capable of stooping to that kind of manipulation and sophistry, then he loses my respect. Stick that in your pipes and smoke (laughs) it. See you next week.